1: Wall Street has been completely upended by an unlikely player, GameStop. mean
0: And should I have a 401k? Because don't never... do it. No, I never. Girl. You think the whole world revolves around you and your money? Well, it doesn't. Charge for wasting our time. I
1: will take a check like a
0: check.
1: You recognize her from anchoring on CNN, CNBC, and Bloomberg. The only financial expert you don't
0: need a dictionary to understand, the Cold Lappin. When we think of industries that are contributing to the climate crisis, we're of course thinking of the energy industry or manufacturing. But what about the fashion industry? The fashion industry, especially fast fashion, is a significant contributor to climate change. That's why on the show, I have been a huge advocate for selling the clothes in the back of your closet and also buying secondhand. It's good for your wallet and the environment. Win, win. So today, I'm sitting down with Rati Sahi Levick, president of The Real Real, the luxury goods resale brand. We're going to talk about the business of fashion, how clothing can be an investment, and whether the brand itself is on the path to profitability. Because as you business nerds know, The real, real recently came out with earnings that got some analysts and investors out there cranky. But more on that with Rati. Rati, I'm so excited to say
1: welcome to Money Rehab. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you.
0: I am a long time customer and seller of the real, real. I actually just opened my app and since 2017, I've sold $90,000. Awesome. (laughs) Which is bananas. It's actually gone up since I first wrote these notes. $90,250. That is awesome. And VIP status. So I'm a big fan, and we can start there. I have always been rooting for the company on for many macro and personal microeconomic reasons. Um, I'm an early adopter, and I knew some of the early employees of the company. But for those who don't know, I'd love to start out by hearing the origin story of the real real. Can you share that story?
1: Yes, I can. I'll say that you know, 11 years ago now, um, we started the company with Julie Wainwright. Who who is the original founder. And, um, you know, at the beginning it was a nascent industry, I'd say, um, not a lot of people, we were introducing a lot of people to consignment and resale. And I think it still had this certain stigma to it. So not everyone, um, wanted to buy used clothes or talk about it, or, you know, it became, we even saw it in the comments on our and you know, our net promoter score, like, I'm going to give you a one because I don't want anyone knowing that I buy resale or I don't want anyone knowing about resale in general. Um, And, and, you know, they don't want, they don't want anyone taking their size. There's only so many size sevens in their Chanel shoe or whatever it was. There were a lot of reasons why people kept it a secret. And, um, and, you know, it was, we always said we wanted to take the top off the eBay eBay and the bottom off of Sotheby's and Christie's and really sit in that kind of middle ground and diversify, right? When there's not a lot of places that where you can sell ready to wear and shoes and find jewelry and watches. So, you know, we find our job is to educate our sellers every day and how they could retain resale value and what that could look like and to be a part of the circular economy. And a lot of the reasons I was so excited was just the sustainability factor, you know, and back in the day, you know, even 10 years ago, it was the stat was two thousand items were being thrown away every second um and people thought clothing was disposable and you could literally take a top and throw it in the trash and that continues to happen that stat is still very similar um and our job i is to educate people into what holds its resale value um what you know what retains its value why why items shouldn't be thrown away if you're buying well in the primary w- market. And I say one other thing that, you know, people always ask me, like, when did you know this was really going to take off or, you know, because in, in the early days we were working out of Julie's house and then we moved into like, a, you know, it was a, st- it was a true startup story. Right. And we were unpacking boxes, pick packing, and shipping and like a U-Haul or calls. something. It was like my beat up Toyota Rav Four. Yeah, it was. We didn't even have a U-Haul, and just driving around, you know, trying to find sellers, literally cold calling and trying to find stylists that wanted to consign with us. Um, and I knew it was going to really take off when when sellers started to call us and say, "Hey, I'm at Barney's," back when Barney's was around, or Neiman Marcus, and I am deciding between two bags. What holds its resale value? Like, or I'm deciding between, you know, a Louis Vuitton and a Givenchy. Like, what should I buy? What holds its resale value? And they were really starting to make decisions in the primary market based on the resale um, value. And say that I knew it was going to be successful based on that story. And then when people just started sending us Birkins in the mail, just. Shipping Birkins. No one even had to pick up. And I was like, wow, the trust is pretty (laughs) amazing. Um, so it's been, it's been really fun. It's been a fun ride. It sounds like
0: one. I think of those types of purchases, Louis Vuitton or Givenchy or, you know, the Chanels or the Birkins that hold their value or in some cases appreciate almost like a bond. If you're going to buy it, you kind of know that you're going to get the equivalent or sometimes more in the resale market. And that's a big deal uh, for the fashion industry. But I'd love to click on the circular economy for a moment. The environmental impact of the fashion industry is significant. And if changes are made to the industry, it could really impact fighting climate change. Can you tell listeners a little bit more about the environmental impact of the fashion industry and fast fashion?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, so much water, so much carbon. I mean, it's a it's a wasteful industry. There's a McKenzie study that recently um, was published around revealing that if one in five garments by 2030 is recycled or recirculated, it's key to achieving the one and a half degree climate goals. And so that alone, you know, is huge. And, you know, how do we get people to really understand that? And understand the pollution around, around the fashion industry. Do We try not to be so insular because resale on a whole is good for the planet. It's not just about the real, real. And how do we get more and more people partaking in this? And I think, you know, it's important to call out the fast fashion brands or some of these mall brands that aren't thinking about fashion this way and are thinking about it as being disposable and more is more and we're seeing a shift in our consumer behavior where they're buying you know maybe they're not buying you know fifty items in a year, especially with the younger demographic. they're buying maybe ten items a year, fifteen items a year, but they're buying well, and then they're reselling it and earning some of it back. So seeing that kind of change is really interesting um. We launched a sustainability calculator in 2018, which I've I'm sure you've seen on the site if you're if you're on our site. And it just shows the impact um that a, one person has on recirculating their goods um, or buying with the real real. So how much water and carbon is being saved. Um we Oh, can I tell you mine? Yeah. Yes, please tell me. <laughs>
0: well, sister, I have saved sixty thousand eight hundred and ninety liters of water. That's awesome. Woo-hoo! I have saved 1,244 kilograms of carbon.
1: That's awesome. Go me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, I know. And it's such it's so it's it, it's a feel good moment, too. Right. And it makes you realize that you can have an impact.
0: Yeah. And it sounds like less is more and buying more expensive could actually in the long run be better for your wallet. And I know you probably don't want to call out specific fast fashion brands unless you do, by all means. But I would love to. Yeah, the the forever 21s of the world. I mean, it's like disposable clothing. And ultimately, you're not going to get that value back. And especially with uh, the carbon footprint, can you explain how shopping secondhand affects customers' own environmental footprint. I see mine calculated because I'm a customer and a seller, but how can people start thinking about that as they're shopping?
1: Right. Well, yeah, there's the environmental impact, but like you said, there's also the piece that's good for the pocketbook too, right? And I think we don't talk about that enough as well. You know, you 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 go into a mall and you buy a $200 cashmere sweater and um and you can buy a $200 Prada dress on the site. That's our average selling port price, about $200, and you can earn 50-60% of it back instead of, you know, donating it. So like you said it, there is this piece that's good for the wallet as well, but as far as your personal impact on sustainability and the water and carbon savings, um, you know, as a whole, we've Saved three point one billion liters of water, so that's like equivalent to thirteen billion glasses of water and fifty nine thousand metric tons of carbon, and so that amount—that's like nine point nine million trees to absorb in a year. So again, these numbers start to add up, and um, and you know that, and I think it's it, that the sustainability calculator was really—it took us years to kind of put together because we wanted to make sure. We weren't greenwashing, and it was super scientific. And we worked with a third party to to get the scientific value and credibility to develop it. I get that for sure.
0: Well, with this being earnings season, I've been talking to entrepreneurs uh, about some of their earnings calls. We just had John Zimmer on, president and co-founder of Lyft, to decode a recent earnings call. I'd love to do the same with you, if you don't mind. Uh, what were the major updates on the Real Real's most recent earnings?
1: Yeah, um, you know, the earnings, I'd say overall went really well. Um, the second quarter um, was great. We did everything we said we were going to do in the first and second quarter. So, first half of the year, Q2 GMV growth 30%, revenue grew 47%, and then EBITDA um, improved. It was 18% of revenue versus uh, closer to 31%. Last year at this time. So you're seeing our losses narrow. Um, so overall looking really good. I mean, our focus really is profitability, launched something called Vision 2025, which showed how we would get there. It'd say, um, where we weren't a COVID story. A lot of some companies were, we weren't. It did set us back. So we went public in 2019, COVID hit in 2020. We kind of had, we had a lot of challenges, you know, not, I'm not even going to sugarcoat it. It was hard. It was a hard time for us. We had to furlough employees. Um, our GMB cut in half, if not more. Um, so we kind of had to work our way out of that. And now I'm happy to report we're in a much more predictable space. Um, our business is much more predictable And a lot of that is behind us. Um, But we still do have some challenges. The great resignation was a little in labor shortages and things like that. But the good news is we have a very solid plan to get us to profitability. And that's really our short-term focus, um, our short and medium-term focus. And the teams all rallied behind that. You know, when I think of sustainability, I don't just think about being sustainable in the environmental way, but also sustainable as a company and, making sure that we're making the right trade-offs. And we talk a lot about profitable growth and that's that's our vision for the company. And we cut um, some projects that maybe weren't showing profit or didn't have the same profitable growth signs. Um, we're seeing a lot more leverage in our fixed and variable expenses um, and just making the right trade-offs and prioritizing across the board. Um, and I think the good news even through COVID is that it just made us a lot stronger as a company. We gained you know many more efficiencies because of it, and um, we're seeing our margin increase now. We're seeing the flywheel effect really happening on the buyers and consigners. we're seeing our back getting better. Um, so it's really about now proving profitability. We, you're, you're going to continue to see those losses narrow um, through the end of the year and into next year until we get to break even.
0: We talk to a lot of newbie investors uh, who listen to the show. So if somebody's like GMV, what is
1: that? <laughs> right. So I know There's we so use a lot of acronyms. Too. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I was watching this TikTok the other day where it could have been any company, and it was GMV, ASP, HBR. Totally, it like, it could have been any company. <laughs>
0: and different industries have their own acronyms. <laughs> it's a whole thing.
1: <laughs> totally. <laughs> Yeah, but GMV is gross, gross merchandise value, and that's how we look at um, the demand and some of the health of our business. And then revenue is another product of that minus cancellations and returns. So that's the real meat of the number. Um, and then EBITDA is like our net loss um, as a company for the quarter.
0: Thank you for decoding that to somebody who might be a customer and then, you know, wants to become an investor because as a public company, anybody can be an investor in that company. Uh, You talked a little bit about brick and mortar. Uh, I have dropped off stuff in brick and mortar. You started more of the brick and mortar going into the pandemic. How has that fared? And what do you see the future of that being as an e-commerce first company going into brick and mortar?
1: Yeah. 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 I mean, at the end of the day, brick and mortar has been an accelerator to our growth. Um, It's been a big brand play for us because like we talked about, people didn't necessarily, there was a stigma, right? To consignment and people didn't know what kind of condition their item was going to arrive in. You know, What does excellent mean to us? What is good condition? What is fair condition? It was important that we kind of showcase what that means. We got a lot of slack i would say for opening stores because people are like well you're online why would you spend all this investment in stores and you know why does that make sense and i even had bets with people in the com- inside the company you know saying that's that's not going to do more than x amount like that's a waste of time or whatever it was and we opened our first store in soho in new york and it doubled tripled our expectations um and it brought in a ton of supply that's the that's why we open them at the end of the day and these stores break even in about a year which is uh you know really great for the business as well
0: hold on to your wallets boys and girls money rehab will be right back do you ever get fomo fear of missing out well do you ever get fomo tupita fear of missing out on the perfect hire if so i have the antidote needs so they're hooking up money rehabbers at linkedin.com slash mnn go there and you can post your job for free that's linkedin.com slash mnn as in money news network to post your job for free terms and conditions apply Now for some more money rehab. And in this last round of earnings, we also saw some movement from analysts. For those listeners who don't know, analysts give public companies ratings that are essentially recommendations for investors. I'm curious how analysts' ratings change any of your operational strategy. Uh, there was recent uh, Bank of America analyst who downgraded his rating of the real real to underperform from buy. How does that affect you your planning or strategy, if at all?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I'm, you know, it's another input for us. We have a lot of inputs. And how I like to think about it is we're talking to hundreds, you know, of investors every year, many analysts. And um, it's, you know, they, they, they're, they're seeing things on a macro level a lot of times. So they have some really interesting insights. And I like to think about it as one input because there's many different opinions and you'll have one analyst say something totally different than another one and completely contradict others. And you've got analysts who are more short-term thinking versus long-term thinking. And um, we kind of have to stay true to what we're doing every day. And I think that's really important. Um, but I would say that these conversations that we have with them are valuable. I find them valuable. Um, but again, I think as long as you can realize as someone that's operating a company that it's an input and at the end of the day, you have to do what's right um for the company, your shareholders, and um, you know, whatever's right for your business, which may be more long-term versus short term and your employees um, who are gonna all make this happen every day. So again, it's an input, not the decision maker, but again, really good conversations. I don't know if we've ever changed a strategy completely, but I'd say, I would say that there's been tweaks based on conversations we've had where they have been eye-opening and interesting. I, I do think, you know, and we were talking about this the other day because we just had an earnings call. Um, and I do wish there was more conversation around people and planet. You know, and I think that the environmental, social, governance piece is really important, um, especially the people side of things. And um, they make our company run. And it's you know, anyone that's run a company knows it's all about the people internally too. And um, I, I would say there's not as many questions about that, and we call that ESG—the environmental, um, social, and governance aspect—and I think that's cha- I do think that's changing, um, which is the good news. But I know that it's more of a focus in in the e- EU than it is in the US right now.
0: What do you think the biggest thing investors and analysts misunderstand
1: about the company? Is it ESG or is it beyond that? I think um, a lot of investors. Um, a couple of things. Well, I, uh, the p I'd say, I'd say is misunderstood. Um, I think there's a lot of naysayers as far as can we get to profitability? And I know we can. And I think um, we've had some setbacks, but I know as on a whole, we, we can get there and we feel really good about our plan go forward. Um, and then I'd say that there's um, a misconception just about retail and brand and the impact that we really are having to the consumer behavior. And, you know, if I told you some of the stories that from early on that we had with investors on should we, should you invest? And they were like, why would we invest in used clothes? Like, you know, we had one investor, like, put his shoes on the table and say, I see these shoes. I've been wearing these shoes for the last seven years, why would I ever sell them? Why would I get rid of them? When I am done with them, I'm going to throw them out. And so it's just, it's not intuitive to people. Wow. And then we had some really great investors who totally got it. And you know, some of our, our early ones were women, I will say. And so it was a bit more intuitive because that's the way they're shopping and buying and they can see this kind of um, change. So it, it is really interesting, but I will say that I do think it's changing in a big way. I want more of those stories over drinks. <laughs>
0: Another day. Uh, this brings me to my next question that I also asked John Zimmer. Uh, if you do a Google news search, you'll see praiseworthy and scathing articles on all public companies. It's just the way it goes, yours included. Does it Sorry. suck being a public company? Do you wish you didn't have this extra layer of scrutiny that really doesn't exist with private companies?
1: Um, you know, I don't think it sucks to be a public company. I think it's hard. I think it's challenging. I think it's really fun too. Um, I would say it's rewarding at the end of the day. I would say these articles are noise and internally we know that and we keep our eye on the ball. I'd say that our investors, on a whole, I'm, I'm more optimistic by all of it. And I actually think it makes us better. And I think, like I said, having these conversations with our investors, our board, um, you know, our shareholders out there, they all have a piece of the company. They believe in the real, real. They're excited to see it. Um, turn and you know they'll they'll stop us and say you know when they find out they're real real it's like I invested x amount when you first went public and I believe in this company and here's what I like and it's it's fun and that is real really much that is very much rewarding and um, they'll also give us feedback and they'll say you know I wish you could do X, Y, and Z a little better. Or I have this experience and I want to be better. And that, again, makes us better. And we take all of those really seriously. And it has been a challenging time via all the labor shortages and COVID and all of that. But I'd say, like I said, we've come out stronger. I really do believe that. And we're starting to see it in the data and our NPS score and our numbers. And we're continuing to do that work for our shareholders.
0: How often do you check your stock price? I know you try to put blinders on, but
1: I'm sure. Um, Yeah, you know, I don't check it very often, to be honest with you. I'll say I'll check it about every week. I will check it when it comes up in conversation with our employees and all of that. I have learned over the last couple of years that it it there's some things we can do to move the stock price, and there's some things we don't do, and the stock price just moves up or down, and it's nothing we did or said, and So it really is, you really do learn that it's this volatile and especially ours being in the retail space, the tech space, and right now being unprofitable, it is this thing that goes up and down. And we kind of have to, again, just really focus on what we can control, um, which is, you know, our seller experience, our NPS score, profitability, efficiencies, um, and all of that.
0: So that sounds like a lesson, too, to investors who refresh their whatever Schwab or E-Trade account constantly. Would you tell them, what kind of advice would you tell them to try and put their blinders on and
1: <laughs> chill? <Yeah>. It's hard. <laughs> it, it's hard. I totally get it. I mean, there's a, you know, for a lot of these people, there's a lot writing on it. But for me, and the real, real, we're in this for the long run. And we are, you know, I feel like one of my responsibilities is long-term shareholder value and not short-term. And that's really how I think about, you know, every decision we make and um, every project we're doing and how we um, are thinking about new projects and onboarding our employees and, and talking to our investors. So And I think, you know, if we stay focused on long-term shareholder value, I think the rest of it will work itself out.
0: I guess that's the only way you can go down this bumpy road of Wall Street. Well, I am rooting for it in a way I couldn't say when I was on other business networks like CNBC and Bloomberg. Uh, But I think the core of the business is good for people's wallets and the environment. And that is a win-win for me.
1: Thanks, Nicole.
0: For today's tip, you can take straight to the bank. Get in the habit of asking yourself two very important questions before you buy that new sweater you've had your eye on. Number one, what's the resale cost of this item? And number two, is the brand taking steps toward offsetting their carbon footprint? We can make such a big difference to our wallets and the world if we're more mindful of the environmental impact of the clothing brands we support and more thoughtful about the investment we're making in our wardrobes i is a production of iHeartRadio. I'm your host, Nicole Lappin. Our producers are Morgan Lavoy and Mike Coscarelli. Executive producers are Nikki Etor and Will Pearson. Our mascots are Penny and Mimsy. Huge thanks to OG Money Rehab team Michelle Lands for her development work, Catherine Law for her production and writing Magic, and Brandon Dicker for his editing, engineering, and sound design. And as always, thanks to you for finally investing in yourself so that you can get it together and get it all.
1: We spend-